And all the people said, Amen, Amen. It's uh, such a wonderful, wonderful feast uh, we've enjoyed. Thank you so much. Um, from the offertory to every piece, I'm so grateful, so grateful to share this worship with you. And I believe in the Lord's goodness. There's an occasion ahead of us where more people would want to come and share this beautiful worship that we enjoy this morning. The Lord is good to us. The Apostle Paul, don't get too excited, it's not the wrong text, but in 1 Corinthians 10, we're heading to Numbers 11, but in 1 Corinthians 10, he reflects on some of these same difficult passages. I call them difficult. They're passages about wandering. And we'll begin reading in, in 11 where they've been camped out around Sinai and now they break camp and now they're on their march. And about three days in, things get rough. Paul said that these wilderness wanderings and the testings that Israel went through during them were a lesson to us. They're a model to us as Christians. And with that hope, I turn to these passages. It may be a strange recipe. You might think in a hard season we would get very happy little verses to sustain us, but maybe sometimes it's the hard verses that might speak to us. And these are hard. Uh, they're meant to be paralleled, I think, uh, very intricately with other occasions where things have gone better. better when God has provided for them and their needs and Moses has interceded and it all worked and, and things had worked. But this time, notice this, now we see that things are hard. Rebellion and complaining and craving gets the people off track and they can't appreciate what God has done for them. And they lose their way, even in the wandering. They lose connections. And I believe even in these examples of disobedience, there are lessons for us to learn. So if you would, stay with me. It's a long text. I'll be commenting along the way, and I'll make a couple of observations as we close. But would you follow along? I'll, I'll direct your attention to, again, Numbers chapter 11. We'll begin reading verse Four, the first three verses are sort of a typical little introduction for this area. They talk about a complaining and God's anger burning. His nose is flared out. He's angry. He's uh, worked up. And Moses interceding and, well, they're able to be restored and go on. It's a symbol or a little parable, a little, little version of what we'll see played out again and again in the chapters that follow. It's called the place of burning, strangely enough, where God's anger burned against them. We're not told about the extent of the punishment, and we're even not even sure exactly who the target of the punishment is or the wrongdoing, but it's warning enough for what's to prepare, for what we're to be prepared for as we read. And if you would follow along in verse 4, we're reading from the NIV, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. 
We remember the fish we ate at Egypt and at no cost. And there were also cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. The only thing we ever see, if I could paraphrase, is just this manna. Day in, day out, for every day, they gathered manna. Now, we're not sure who this rabble, this riffraff is. Is that the people who caused the trouble in verses 1 through 3? Is that just an entourage that doesn't really belong to Israel that tagged along with them? But we know this. Their complaint and their craving is contagious. And Israel hears it from them, but that doesn't take them very long. They are very acclimated. They get this notion and this spirit and they begin to stand at the tent openings and wail out. And when they do, God is injured and he is angry. Verses 7 through 9, we'll skip over. Although there's a manna recipe in case you want to try it. I don't know how you'll go about it exactly, but there it is. We'll pick up the story in verses 10. Where Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance of their tents, the Lord became exceedingly angry, angry, and Moses was troubled. He saw what they did as evil, I think quite crudely or literally. And he asked the Lord, notice how the same changes now, before it's always when God has been put out with these people and their lack of response and their lack of faith and lack of appreciation he is anger burns, and it's Moses who steps in and says, Lord, now, now remember who you are, and remember who I am, and remember we're close. And somehow uh, the interceding of Moses, the relationship with Moses is able to spill out over Israel at large. And, but notice, this is not the way it goes now. God is mad, and Moses is hurt. And he doesn't so much intercede. In fact, he almost blames God for putting him in this spot. Wow, it's heavy. Verse 11, he asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you would put this burden? Of all these people, you put this burden on me. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? And why do you tell me now that, that I need to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, then just please go ahead and take me out, if I could paraphrase again. Just go ahead and kill me. But if I have found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own ruin or undoing. Now I'll skip this paragraph where God responds to him. It's interesting that God doesn't so much directly answer his question, but God instead sort of gives an answer and a remedy. He says, um, 
Moses, I want you to call the 70 together. Get 70 leaders or elders together. We, we've seen them echo before in, in, in Exodus. But get these 70 together and um, I, I'm going to put my spirit. I'm going to share the spirit I have on you and I'm going to put that spirit on them. And they will be able to help you with this load is the idea. And then God goes on to say something else. He says, I'm going to give them the meat. By the way, he doesn't just say, I'm going to give them some meat. He says, I'm going to give them a lot of meat. I'm going to bring birds and they'll be waist deep in birds. They won't know what to do. They'll, they'll have birds and, and birds and birds for not just a, a day or, 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 or five or ten or even twenty, but a, a month full of birds. And I'm going to give them birds and they'll, be, they'll have birds, right? And still Moses is struggling and he comes back with, but Lord, look at the number of these people. How am I ever going to provide that? I, I, could, I need flocks and flocks to even begin to answer this need. And now God seems to push back against Moses a little bit in the conversation. And he says, uh, you know, are my arms too short? <laughs> do, you, do you think I don't have power? And, and then again in the hatchet paraphrase, something like this. Just, just set back and watch. Just In verse 24, we read, So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said, and he brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But it adds, they did not do so again. It was perhaps just to sort of mark the authority of the Spirit resting upon them. But they didn't go on to function as prophets in an ongoing fashion. Now, however, two of these men, whose names were Eldad and Medad, remained in the camp. And they were listed among the elders, but they did not go to the tent. And yet the Spirit rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad, they're out there prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But listen to what Moses says. Verse 29. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them, on all of them. You'll hold that thought if you know the rest of the Bible story and you'd come to the day of Pentecost. Just hold that idea. And then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Now a wind blew out from the Lord and drove quell from the sea, it scattered them up to two cubits deep around the campus, far as a day's walk in any direction. Lots of birds, lots of meat. And all that day and that night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail 
and no one had less than ten homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, and before they consumed it, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. And therefore, the name of the place is Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who craved other food. And from this place, Kibroth Hataava, the people traveled to Hazaroth and stayed there. I want to tell you that this image, this place name, haunts me. I want to tell you that in my life uh, in ministry, I've seen people who have been near the end of their life or at certain uh, certain place in their life and realized the costliness of craving, how it compromised who God called them to be. And it's a heavy thing. This phrase means something like the, the graves of the craving ones, the, the graves of craving, the the graves of the grievously greedy, the particular kind of failure and the heaviness of failure. And I want to say to you, I've been to some scary places in ministry, but none take my breath away any more than this place where I've seen the costliness of someone craving something and desiring something and that's something. It could be the regular things that we worry about in the laundry list of sins, but it could even be something that's fairly decent on its own, but it's a, something that is an appetite and a longing and an addiction perhaps and a compunction and it just overcomes people. Let me tell you, what kills us is not the hunger. What kills us spiritually is the craving. And we can come to this place where we can see that our attention has been focused on something and our longing and all our hopes are put in this and everything, life seems to depend upon this thing or that thing and, and, and we crave it and we want it and we want it and we've now given too far, far too much of our life and what we've forfeited is to be the people that God has called us to be, to be the people who are there so near to God's presence who could be witnesses to the great things that God has done and yet we have forfeited and we've squandered it and we have missed it. And some at the end of their days realize that their lives are misspent. And I want to tell you the scariest thing in a FR minister in my experience is to hear the cry of that person who cries out at the end of their life to say, oh, I spent my life on some things that are just so trivial. And I miss becoming the person that God wanted me to be. C.S. Lewis captures the idea when he talks about a parent looking through the store window at a child inside buying and their child is in there spending the money for things and they agonize because the child is spending treasure and treasure over things that are just so trivial when there are wonderful things to be had in that store and yet the child doesn't know and the child is like, well, you and I 
and these folk down here that we're reading about so long ago from the page, but not so strange and not so distant maybe after all. There they were, so near to God, so near to what God was doing, so central into what God's story was to be. And yet, what they became and what they were was just people who were given to the craving. I'm not talking about just some unrealized goal. You may not have made the promotion you were hoping for. You may have never have come into the ministry that you had longed for. You might have wanted to start an orphanage for children or something grand and glorious and may not have never achieved it. And I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I'm not sure all those goals are so much failure. Sometimes the goals we carry with us in life make us the people that God wants us to be. And, I'm not talking about being at the end of the life and not having arrived at your dream. I'm talking about something much, much heavier. Some sense that the people we are called to be before God, people who celebrate and worship his presence and people who witness his great deeds, somehow we have squandered that. And we give our attention and our life to things that finally just don't matter and don't match up. And when you see with the clarity at death's door what it cost you, and you can see the marker on these graves, it weighs heavy on you. What have I done with my life? What have I done? I spent so much time. I just had to have this. I just couldn't sleep and rest without this. But I was never the person who was a partner with God, and a, a person who walked with God, and a person who prayed with God. And all of that has forfeited and slipped from my, my opportunity now. And now the season of my life has closed. There have been several occasions, and I'm putting together several scenes here from my, my ministry. But several occasions when I've heard that cry. I wish I could give it to you but I, I can't capture it in my voice but it's something like a, a yelp and a wail that comes from something somewhere so deep and I've heard it on one occasion somebody wondered because this person had serious health deficits they wondered if he was having a medical problem but somehow I knew immediately I just knew immediately it wasn't a health crisis but it was a crisis of the heart and when I heard this dear, beautiful saint, when I heard him there near the end of his life, when his health was failing, when I heard him cry out from somewhere deeper than I can hardly imagine, it was the, it was the cry of craving that he had followed some other things and he had missed what God had wanted him to pursue. And I just want to tell you, this heavy, heavy place has lessons for us. And we must awaken our spirits. 
And, and I'm not necessarily talking about a change of vocation, and I don't think all of us are called to gospel ministry, and you get what I'm saying? Uh, it takes some wisdom and discernment, but I think God wants you to be a vital Christian person. I think he wants you to be alive to the Spirit. I think he wants you to be a person of prayer. I think he wants you to invest in the lives of other people. I think he wants you to be alive to God. I think he wants it to be the centerpiece of your life. And that great privilege, wow, we waste we waste it because we want something about power or prestige or money or this or that. And I just want to tell you, this is a heavy, heavy place. And there is but one remedy. And that is to accept the mercy and forgiveness of God. And to renew again our desire to know him above everything else. I also wonder about old Moses here. You usually see Moses when he's pulling the weight, not only of himself, but he's pulling the weight for Israel. He seems so strong and powerful. No wonder we celebrate him, and no wonder Jesus praised him so. But here we see him overwhelmed and frustrated. He says, why have you put these people on me? I can't do this. Now he has no hope. He can't even hear God's provision when God says, I'm going to bring the, I'm going to bring the birds. I'm going to bring the birds in a real way. He, he just says, how am I going to do that, Lord? He, he now is working in his own strength, and the Lord is just uh, patient with him there. And I just want to tell you, in times of frustration, in times when we can be overwhelmed, we need to be awakened again to the power of God, God's Rhetorical questions seem to, the, the kind of uh, comments seem to kind of set the stage. Am my arms short? You don't think I can do what I said I would do? You just watch what I'll do, and notice the mercy of God even in his frustration. He grants Moses help. There'll be other people authorized to exercise authority and to share the load. The seventy are brought in. It's an interesting idea. I don't have time to pursue it, but you know, at Babylon there were 70 dispossessed nations, and in Deuteronomy chapter 32, there uh, these nations are assigned to other spiritual beings, other uh, small case gods, I guess suppose you'd call them. And one day God is going to correct those. You can find it in the Psalms. He's going to correct those. Uh, Spiritual beings who've been over these other nations, they've not been good stewards and not been keeping care. They've been rebels instead. And God's going to take the authority of those nations back. And that might be the idea behind these 70. And that idea is carried forward even in the ideas of Jesus. But the 70 here works to function to help Moses go on. And so Moses has to be reminded about God's power. Moses needs to be reminded that he cannot bear this burden and cannot do what God is going to do in his own strength. And he has to be encouraged that there are others who are gifted around him. And by the way, for a church that's wanting to call a pastor, there might just be some good lessons right there. To come beside your new pastor with your gifts ready and eager to serve, with the assurance that he does not bear this burden alone, but that you are with him and that you are praying for God's wonderful provision and power. You, you hear people say, you gotta get the leadership you deserve, and, and there's strangely an irony about that. If you become a bunch of criminals, your new pastor is going to be a sheriff. 
If you become a bunch of complainers, he's going to have to be like a, well, a public relations department. But what if you were to allow him the encouragement to say, you be who you are, you be your gifts, you exercise your gifts, you, you be who you are. We'll be here with you. Our gifts are ready to serve alongside of you. You are not alone. And the Lord will bless us. Wow. God's arms are not short. And just you watch to see what God can do. It's Paul who said there's lessons here, and there are many more beyond. Uh, but I want to just say to you, Jesus seems to be very much informed by these passages as well. Just think of how many things you've learned in Sunday school that Jesus said that seem to fit here. Didn't Jesus tell you, like the manna, you have to get your daily bread? Having been wealthy in faith in days gone by does not mean you are a person of active faith today. Daily bread. Didn't he say to Satan that he's not going to make these loaves? He's not going to tempt God with that. He's going to instead depend upon everything that comes out of the mouth of God. What sustains him is going to be what God tells him. Doesn't he tell us to seek the kingdom first? Doesn't he tell us along the way that you've got to decide in this world? You can, you can worship stuff and you can let that be your priority. Or, or you can worship God. One or the other will win out. Doesn't he warn us that you could gain the whole world but lose your own soul doesn't he call us to be his people, commissioning us and sending us out like he sent out the 70 to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so much of what is captured in these chapters of failure hold for us the recipe for success. And my word to you is this, let us Set our affection on Jesus Christ. For someone who may be listening to me this, this morning, this may be the first time ever. But you need to renounce your own scheme and your own dream. And you may be thinking, goodness, God is sure mischievous here. All that, all that. All that bird, all that meat, all that flesh he dumps on them. I want to say to you that we know who Jesus is with all of the images in the story because at the center there's, uh, we know who God is because at the center is Jesus. But I don't want to take away these images for you and I want to tell you there is actually a, a pattern and routine in these, in these verses that is very stubborn in the Bible that God, when his anger burns, he gives people over to what they want. Paul captures this in the first chapter of Romans. Uh, Debbie and I heard just a, a video recently on Bible Project that cataloged a bunch of these in the Old Testament. I had been captured by it in the first chapter of Romans. But do you know what God really does when his anger burns 
out toward you. You know what is so often what happens? He gives you what you want. And you're hell on earth and maybe beyond is when you get exactly what you want. It's not the hunger that kills you. It's the craving. But there is good news in Jesus Christ. There's a God who can restore you and repair you, forgive you, and he can remake you. He can bring you to a salvation, to a newness of life and a new destiny. And we find our hope when we put him at our center and our focus and make him our everything, give him our allegiance, make him the center of what we do. We can still live, we can be forgiven. God can restore us, he can forgive us of past squandered. We don't have to be victims and be the people who die with the cravings and die with the unfilled desires. We can be people who find life in this life and hope in the life to come in the power of Jesus Christ who can forgive and restore. And for just, just the presence to hear that message, just to see it happen, just to be a witness to it, we should give him everything we are. Take my life.